Chapter 5, Part 3 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero. Translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 5, The Industrial Arts. Section 3, Metals. The Egyptians classified metals under two heads namely the noble metals as gold electrum and silver and the base metals as copper iron lead and at a later period tin the two lists are divided by the mention of certain kinds of precious stones such as lapis lazuli and malachite iron was reserved for weapons of war and tools in use for hard substances such as sculptors and masons chisels axe and adze heads knife blades and saws Lead was comparatively useless, but was sometimes used for inlaying temple doors, coffers, and furniture. Also, small statuettes of gods were occasionally made in this metal, especially those of Osiris and Anubis. Copper was too yielding to be available for objects in current use. Bronze, therefore, was the favourite metal of the Egyptians. Though often affirmed, it is not true that they succeeded in tempering bronze, so that it became as hard as iron or steel but by varying the constituents and their relative proportions they were able to give it a variety of very different qualities most of these objects hitherto analysed have yielded precisely the same quantities of copper and tin commonly used by the bronze founders of the present day those analysed by vauquelin in eighteen twenty five contained eighty four per cent of copper fourteen per cent of tin and one per cent of iron and other substances a chisel bought from egypt by sir gardner wilkinson contained only from five to nine per cent of tin one per cent of iron and ninety-four of copper certain fragments of statuettes and mirrors more recently subjected to analysis have yielded a notable quantity of gold and silver thus corresponding with the bronzes of corinth other specimens resemble brass both in their colour and substance many of the best egyptian bronzes offer a surprising resistance to damp and oxidise with difficulty while yet hot from the mould they were rubbed with some kind of resinous varnish which filled up the pores and deposited an unalterable patina upon the surface each kind of bronze had its special use the ordinary bronze was employed for weapons and common amulets the brazen alloys served for household utensils the bronzes mixed with gold and silver were destined only for mirrors costly weapons and statuettes of value in none of the tomb paintings which i have seen is there any representation of bronze founding or bronze working but this omission is easily supplemented by the objects themselves tools arms rings and cheap vases were sometimes forged and sometimes cast whole in moulds of hard clay or stone works of art were cast in one or several pieces according to circumstances the parts were then united soldered and retouched with the buran the method most frequently employed was to prepare a core of mixed clay and charcoal or sand which roughly reproduced the modelling of the mould into which it was introduced the layer of metal between this core and the mould was often so thin that it would have yielded to any moderate pressure had they not taken the precaution to consolidate it by having the core for a support domestic utensils and small household instruments were mostly made in bronze such objects are exhibited by thousands in our museums and frequently figure in bas-reliefs and mural paintings art and trade were not incompatible in egypt and even the coppersmith sought to give elegance of form and to add ornaments in a good style 
to the humblest of his works. The saucepan in which the cook of Ramesses III concocted his masterpieces is supported on a lion's feet. Here is a hot water jug which looks as if it were precisely like its modern successors. But on a closer examination, we shall find that the handle is a full-blown lotus, the petals, which are bent over at an angle to the stalk, resting against the edge of the neck. The handles of knives and spoons are almost always in the form of a duck's or goose's neck, slightly curved. The bowl is sometimes fashioned like an animal, as, for instance, a gazelle ready-bound for the sacrifice. On the hilt of a sabre we find a little crouching jackal. And the larger limb of a pair of scissors in the Giza Museum is made in the likeness of an Asiatic captive, his arms tied behind his back. A lotus leaf forms the disc of a mirror, and its stem is the handle. One perfume box is a fish, another is a bird, another is a grotesque deity. The lustration vases, or situlae, carried by priests and priestesses for the purpose of sprinkling either the faithful or the ground traversed by religious processions, merit the special consideration of connoisseurs. They are ovoid or pointed at the bottom, and decorated with subjects either chaste or in relief. These sometimes represent deities, each in a separate frame, and sometimes scenes of worship. The work is generally very minute. Bronze came into use for statuary purposes from a very early period, but time, unfortunately, has preserved none of those idols which peopled the temples of the ancient empire. Whatsoever may be said to the contrary, we possess no bronze statuettes of any period anterior to the expulsion of the Hyksos. Some Theban figures date quite certainly from the 18th and 19th dynasties. The chased lion's head, found with the jewels of Queen Aahotep, the Hippocrates of Giza, inscribed with the names of Kamez and Ahmes I, and several statuettes of Amen, said to have been discovered at Midnet Habu, and Sheikh Abd el Gurneh, are of that period. Our most important bronzes belong, however, to the 22nd dynasty, or later still, to the time of the Saiti pharaohs. Many are not older than the first Ptolemies. A fragment found in the ruins of Tanis and now in the possession of Count Stroganoff formed part of a votive statue dedicated by King Pisebkanu. It was originally two-thirds the size of life and is the largest specimen known. A portrait statue of the Lady Takoshet, given to the Museum of Athens by Monsieur Demetrio, the four statuettes from the Posno collection now at the Louvre, and the kneeling genius of Giza are all from the site of Babastus, and date probably from the years which immediately preceded the ascension of Psammeticus I. The Lady Takashet is left standing, the left foot advanced, the right arm hanging down, the left raised and brought close to the body. She wears a short robe, embroidered with religious subjects, and has bracelets on her arms and wrists. Upon her head she has a wig with flat curls, row above row. The details both of her robe and jewels are engraved in incised lines upon the surface of the bronze, and inlaid with silver threads. The face is evidently a portrait, and represents a woman of mature age. The form, according to the traditions of Egyptian art, is that of a younger woman, slender, firm, and supple. The copper in this bronze is largely intermixed with gold, thus producing a chastened lustre, which is admirably suited to the richness of the embroidered garment. The kneeling genius of Giza is as rude and repellent as Lady Takashet is delicate and harmonious. He has a hawk's head, and he worships the sun, as is the duty of a Heliopolitan genii. His right arm is uplifted, his left is pressed to his breast. The style of the whole is dry, and the granulated surface of the skin adds to the hard effect of the figure. The action, however, is energetic and correct. 
and the bird's head is adjusted with surprising skill to the man's neck and shoulders the same qualities and the same faults distinguish the horus of the posno collection standing he uplifted a libation vase now lost and poured the contents upon a king who once stood face to face with him this roughness of treatment is less apparent in the other three posno figures above all in that which bears the name of mosu engraved over the place of the heart like the horus this mosu stands upright his left foot advanced and his left arm pendant his right hand is raised as grasping the wand of office the trunk is naked and round his loins he wears a striped cloth with a squared end falling in front his head is clad in a short wig covered with short curls piled one above the other the ear is round and large the eyes are well opened and were originally of silver but have been stolen by some arab the features have a remarkable expression of pride and dignity after these what can be said for the thousands of statuettes of osiris of isis of nephthys of horus of hephatum which have been found in the sands and ruins of saqqara bubastus and other cities of the delta many are without doubt charming objects for glass cases and are to be admired for perfection of casting and delicacy of execution but the greater number are mere articles of commerce made upon the same pattern and perhaps in the self-same moulds century after century for the delight of devotees and pilgrims they are rounded vulgar destitute of originality and have no more distinction than the thousands of coloured statuettes of saints and virgins which stock the shelves of our modern dealers in pious wares an exception must however be made in favour of the images of animals such as rams sphinxes and lions which to the last retained a more pronounced stamp of individuality the egyptians had a special predilection for the feline race they have represented the lion in every attitude giving chase to the antelope springing upon the hunter wounded and turning to bite his wound couchant and disdainfully calm and no people have depicted him with a more thorough knowledge of his habits or with so intense a vitality several gods and goddesses as shu anher bast sekhet tefnut have the form of the lion or of the cat and inasmuch as the worship of these deities was more popular in the delta than elsewhere so there never passes a year when from amid the ruins of bubastus tanis mendes or some less famous city there is not dug up a store of little figures of lions and lionesses or of men and women with lions heads or cats heads the cats of bubastus and the lions of tel as seba crowd our museums the lions of Horbiot may be reckoned among the chefs de oeuvre of egyptian statuary upon one of the largest among them is inscribed the name of apriers but if even this evidence were lacking the style of the piece would compel us to attribute it to the Sa'ite period it formed part of the ornamentation of a temple or naos door and the other side was either built to a wall or embedded into a piece of wood the lion is caught in a trap or perhaps lying down in an oblong cage with only his head and four feet outside the lines of the body are simple and full of power the expression of the face is calm and strong in breadth and majesty he almost equals the fine limestone lions of amenhotep the third the idea of inlaying gold and other precious metals upon the surface of bronze stone or wood was already ancient in egypt in the time of khufu the gold is often amalgamated with pure silver when amalgamated to the extent of twenty per cent it changes its name and is called electrum azimu this electrum is a fine light yellow colour it pales as the proportion of silver becomes larger and at sixty per cent it is nearly white the silver came chiefly from asia in rings sheets and bricks of standard weight the golden electrum 
came partly from Syria in bricks and rings, and partly from the Sudan in nuggets and gold dust. The process of refining and alloying are figured on certain monuments of the early dynasties. In a bas-relief at Saqqara, we see the weighted gold entrusted to the craftsmen for working. In another example, open bracket, at Beni Hassan, close bracket, the washing and melting down of the ore is represented. And again at Thebes, the goldsmith is depicted sitting in front of his crucible, holding the blowpipe to his lips with the left hand, and grasping his pincers with the right, thus fanning the flame, and at the same time making ready to seize the ingot. The Egyptians struck neither coins nor medals. With these exceptions, they made the same use of precious metals as we do ourselves. We gild the crosses and cupolas of our churches, they covered the doors of their temples, the lower part of their wall surfaces, certain bas-reliefs, pyramidians of obelisks, and even whole obelisks, with plates of gold. The obelisks of Queen Hatshepsut at Karnak were coated with electrum. They were visible from both banks of the Nile, and when the sun rose between them, as he came up from the heavenly horizon, they flooded the two Egypts with their dazzling rays. These plates of metal were forged with hammer and anvil. For smaller objects, they made use of little pellets beaten flat between two pieces of parchment. In the Museum of the Louvre, we have a gilder's book, and the gold leaf which it contains is as thin as the gold leaf used by German goldsmiths of the past century. Gold was applied to bronze surfaces by means of an ammoniacal solvent. If the object to be gilt were a wooden statue, the workman began by sticking a piece of fine linen all over the surface, or by covering it with a very thin coat of plaster. Upon this he laid his gold or silver leaf. It is thus that wooden statues of Thoth, Horus, and Nephitim were gilded from the time of Khufu. The temple of Isis, the Lady of the Pyramid, contained a dozen such images, and this temple was not one of the largest in the Memphite necropolis. There would seem to have been hundreds of gilded statues in the Theban temples. At all events, in the time of the victorious dynasties of the New Empire, and as regards wealth, the Ptolemaic sanctuaries were in no wise inferior to those of the Theban period. Bronze and gilded wood were not always good enough for the gods of Egypt. They exacted pure gold, and their worshippers gave them as much of it as possible. Entire statues of the precious metals were dedicated by the kings of the ancient and middle empires, and the pharaohs of the 18th and 19th dynasties, who drew at will upon the treasures of Asia, transcended all that had been done by their predecessors. Even in times of decadence, the feudal lords kept up the traditions of the past, and, like Prince Mentuemhat, replaced the images of gold and silver, which had been carried off from Karnak by the generals of Sardanapalus at the time of the Assyrian invasions. The quantity of metal thus consecrated to the service of the gods must have been considerable. If many figures were less than an inch in height, many others measured three cubits or more. Some were of gold, some were of silver, others were part gold and part silver. There were even some which combined gold with sculptured ivory, ebony, and precious stones, thus closely resembling the chryselephantine statues of the Greeks. Aided by the bas-relief subjects of Karnak, Bednet Habu, and Dendera, as well as by the statues in wood and limestone, which have come down to our day, we can tell exactly what they were like. However the material might vary, the style was always the same. Nothing is more perishable than works of this description. They are foredoomed to destruction by the mere value of the materials in which they are made. What civil war and foreign invasion had spared, and what had chanced to escape the rapacity of Roman princes and governors, fell prey to Christian iconoclasm. A few tiny statuettes, buried as amulets upon the bodies of mummies, 
a few domestic divinities buried in the ruins of private houses, a few ex-votos, forgotten perchance in some dark corner of a fallen sanctuary, have escaped till the present day. The Ta and Amen of Queen Ahahotep, another golden Amen also at Giza, and the silver vulture found in 1885 at Medinet Habu, are the only pieces of this kind which can be attributed with certainty to the great period of Egyptian art. The remainder are of Sa'it or Ptolemaic work. They are remarkable only for the perfection with which they are wrought. The gold and silver vessels used in the service of the temples and in the houses of private persons shared the fate of the statues. At the beginning of the present century, the Louvre acquired some flat-bottomed cups, which Thothmes Third presented as the reward of valour to one of his generals, named Tahuti. The silver cup is much mutilated, but the golden cup is intact and excellently designed. The upright sides are adorned with a hieroglyphic legend. A central rosette is engraved at the bottom. Six fish are represented in the act of swimming round the rosette, and these again are surrounded by a border of lotus bells, united by a curved line. The five vases of the Muis in the Giza Museum are of silver. They form part of the treasury of the temple, and had been buried in a hiding place where they remained till our own day. We have no indication of their probable age, but whether they belong to the Greek or the Theban period, the workmanship is purely Egyptian. Of one vessel, only the cover is left, the handle being formed of two flowers upon one stem. The others are perfect, and are decorated in repousse work with lotus lilies in bud and blossom. The form is simple and elegant, the ornamentation sober and delicate, the relief low. One is, however, surrounded by a row of ovoid bosses, which project in high relief and somewhat alter the shape of the body of the vase. They are interesting specimens, but they are so few in number that, were it not for the wall paintings, we should have but a very imperfect idea of the skill of Egyptian goldsmiths. The pharaohs had not our commercial resources, and could not circulate the gold and silver tribute offerings of conquered nations in the form of coin. When the gods had received their share of the booty, there was no alternative but to melt the rest down into ingots, fashion it into personal ornaments, or convert it into gold and silver plate. What was true of the kings held good also for their subjects. For the space of at least six or eight centuries, dating from the time of Ames I, the taste for plate was carried to excess. Every good house was not only stocked with all that was needful for the service of the table, such as cups, goblets, plates, ewers and ornamental baskets chased with figures of fantastic animals, but also with large ornamental vases, which were dressed with flowers and displayed to visitors on gala days. Some of these vases were of extraordinary richness. Here, for instance, is a crater, the handles modelled as two papyrus buds, and the foot as a full-blown papyrus. Two Asiatic slaves in sumptuous garments are represented in the act of upheaving it with all their strength. Here again is a kind of hydria with a lid in the form of an inverted lotus flanked by the heads of two gazelles. The heads and necks of two horses, bridled and fully caparisoned, stand back to back on either side of the foot of the vase. The body is divided into a series of horizontal zones, the middle zone being in the likeness of a marshland, with an antelope coursing at full speed among the reeds. Two enamelled cruets have elaborately wrought lids, one fashioned as the head of a plumed eagle, and the other as the head of the god Bez, flanked by two vipers. But foremost among them all is a golden centrepiece offered by a viceroy of Ethiopia to Amenhotep III. The design reproduces one of the most popular subjects connected with the foreign conquests of Egypt. Men and apes are seen gathering fruits in a forest of dom-palms. 
two natives each with a single feather on his head and a striped kilt about his loins lead tame giraffes with halters others apparently of the same nationality kneel with upraised hands as if begging for quarter two negro prisoners lying face downwards upon the ground lift their heads with difficulty a large vase with a short foot and a lofty cone-shaped cover stands amid the trees the craftsmen who made this piece evidently valued elegance and beauty less than richness they cared little for the heavy effect and bad taste of the whole provided only that they were praised for their skill and for the quantity of metal which they had succeeded in using other vases of the same type pictured in a scene of presentations to rameses the second in the great temple of abu simbel vary the subject by showing buffaloes running in and out among the trees in place of lead giraffes these were costly playthings wrought in gold such as the byzantine emperors of the ninth century accumulated in their palace of magnora and which they exhibited on state occasions in order to impress foreigners with a profound sense of their riches and power when a victorious pharaoh returned from a distant campaign the vessels of gold and silver which formed part of his booty figured in the triumphal procession together with his train of foreign captives vases in daily use were of slighter make and less encumbered with inconvenient ornaments the two leopards which serve as handles to a crater of the time of thothmes the third are not well proportioned neither do they combine agreeably with the curves of the vase but the accompanying cup and a cruet belonging to the same service are very happily conceived and have much purity of form these vessels of engraved and repose gold and silver some representing hunting scenes and incidents of battle were imitated by phoenician craftsmen and being exported to asia minor greece and italy carried egyptian patterns and subjects into different lands the passion for precious metals was pushed to such extremes under the reigns of the ramesides that it was no longer enough to use them only at table rameses the second and rameses the third had thrones of gold not merely of wood plated with gold but made of the solid metal and set with precious stones these things were too valuable to escape destruction and were the first to disappear their artistic value however by no means equalled their intrinsic value and the loss is not one for which we need to be inconsolable orientals men and women alike are great lovers of jewellery the egyptians were no exception to this rule not satisfied to adorn themselves when living with a profusion of trinkets they loaded the arms the fingers the neck the ears the brow and the ankles of their dead with more or less costly ornaments the quantity thus buried in tombs was so considerable that even now after thirty centuries of active search we find from time to time mummies which are so to say curest in gold much of this funerary jewellery was made merely for show on the day of the funeral and betrays its purpose by the slightness of the workmanship the favourite jewels of the deceased person were nevertheless frequently buried with him and the style and finish of these leaves nothing to be desired chains and rings have come down to us in large numbers as indeed might be expected the ring in fact was not a simple ornament but an actual necessary official documents were not signed but sealed and the seal was good in law every egyptian therefore had his seal which he kept about his person ready for use if required the poor man's seal was a simple copper or silver ring the ring of the rich man was a more or less elaborate jewel covered with chasing and relief work the bezel was movable and turned upon a pivot it was frequently set with some kind of stone engraved with the owner's emblem or device as for example a scorpion a lion a hawk or a cynocephalus ape as in the eyes of her husband his ring was the one essential ornament so was her necklace in the estimation of the egyptian lady i have seen a chain in silver which measured sixty-three inches in length 
Others, on the contrary, do not exceed two or two and a half inches. They are of all sizes and patterns, some consisting of two or three twists, some of large links, some of small links, some massive and heavy, others as light and flexible as the finest Venetian filigree. The humblest peasant girl, as well as the lady of the highest rank, might have her necklet, and the woman must be poor indeed whose little store comprised no other ornament. No mere catalogue of bracelets, diadems, collarettes, or insignia of nobility could give an idea of the number and variety of jewels known to us by pictured representations or existing specimens. Pectorals of gold cloisson work, inlaid with vitreous paste or precious stones, and which bear the cartouches of Eminem Hat II, Usatessen II, and Usatessen III, exhibit a marvellous precision of taste, lightness of touch, and dexterity of fine workmanship. So fresh and delicate are they that we forget the royal ladies to whom they belonged have been dead and their bodies stiffened and disfigured into mummies for nearly five thousand years. At Berlin may be seen the pavu of an Ethiopian Candace. At the Louvre we have the jewels of Prince Saar. At Giza are preserved the ornaments of Queen Aahotep. Aahotep was the wife of Kames, a king of the 17th dynasty, and she was probably the mother of Ahmes I, first king of the 18th dynasty. Her mummy had been stolen by one of the robber bands which infested the Theban necropolis towards the close of the 20th dynasty. They buried the royal corpse till such time as they might have leisure to despoil it in safety, and they were most likely seized and executed before they could carry that pretty little project into effect. The secret hiding place perished with them, till discovered in 1860 by some Arab diggers. Most of the objects which this queen took with her into the next world were exclusively women's gear, as a fan handle plated with gold, a bronze gilt mirror mounted upon an ebony handle enriched with a lotus in chased gold. Her bracelets are of various types. Some are anklets and armlets and consist merely of plain gold rings, both solid and hollow, bordered with plated chainwork in imitation of filigree. Others are for wearing on the wrist, like the bracelets of modern ladies, and are made of small beads of gold, lapis lazuli, carnelian and green felspar. These are strung on gold wire in a checker pattern, each square divided diagonally in halves of different colours. Two gold plates, very lightly engraved, with the cartouches of Ames I, are connected by means of a gold pin and form the fastening. A fine bracelet in the form of two semicircles joined by a hinge also bears the name of Ames I. The make of this jewel reminds us of cloisson enamels. Ames kneels in the presence of the god Seb and his acolytes, the genie of Sop and Konu. The figures and hieroglyphs are cut out in solid gold, delicately engraved with the burin, and stand in relief upon a ground surface filled in with pieces of blue paste and lapis lazuli artistically cut. A bracelet of more complicated workmanship, though of inferior execution, was found on the wrist of the queen. It is of massive gold, and consists of three parallel bands set with turquoises. On the front, a vulture is represented with outspread wings, the feathers composed of green enamel, lapis lazuli, and carnelian, set in cloissons of gold. The hair of the mummy was drawn through a massive gold diadem, scarcely as large as a bracelet. The name of Ames is encrusted in blue paste upon an oblong plaque in the centre, flanked at each side by two little sphinxes, which seem as if in the act of keeping watch over the inscription. Round her neck was a large flexible gold chain, finished at each end by a goose's head reversed. These heads could be linked one to the other when the chain needed to be fastened. The scarabaeus pendant to this chain is encrusted upon the shoulder 
and wing sheaths with blue glass paste rayed with gold the legs and body being in massive gold the royal paru was completed by a large collar of the kind known as the useke it is finished at each end with a golden hawk's head inlaid with blue enamel and consists of rows of scrolls four petalled florets hawks vultures winged uraei crouching jackals and figures of antelopes pursued by tigers the whole of these ornaments are of gold ripper's work and they were sewn upon the royal winding sheet by means of a small ring soldered to the back of each upon the breast below this collar hung a square jewel of the kind known as pectoral ornaments the general form is that of a naos or shrine ames stands upright in a papyrus bark between amen and ra who pour the water of purification upon his head and body two hawks hover to the right and left of the king above the heads of the gods the figures are outlined in cloisons of gold and these were filled in with little plaques of precious stones and enamel many of which have fallen out the effect of this piece is somewhat heavy and if considered apart from the rest of the paru its purpose might seem somewhat obscure in order to form a correct judgment we have however to remember in what fashion the women of ancient egypt were clad they wore a kind of smock of semi-transparent material which came very little higher than the waist the chest and bosom neck and shoulders were bare and the one garment was kept in place only by a slender pair of braces the rich clothed these uncovered parts with jewellery the useka collar half hid the shoulders and chest the pectoral masked the hollow between the breasts sometimes even the breasts were covered with two golden cups either painted or enamelled besides the jewels found upon the mummy of queen ahahotep a number of arms and amulets were heaped inside her coffin namely three massive gold flies hanging from a slender chain nine small hatchets three of gold and six of silver a golden lion's head of very minute workmanship a wooden sceptre set in gold spirals two anklets and two poignards one of these poignards has a golden sheath and a wooden hilt inlaid with triangular mosaics of carnelian lapis lazuli felspar and gold four female heads in gold repose form the pommel and a bull's head reversed covers the junction of blade and hilt the edges of the blade are of massive gold the centre of black bronze damascened with gold on one side is the solar cartouche of ames below which a lion pursues a bull the remaining space being filled in with four grasshoppers in a row on the other side we have the family name of ames and a series of full-blown flowers issuing one from another and diminishing towards the point a poignard found at mycenae by dr Schillerman is similarly decorated the phoenicians who were industrious copyists of egyptian models probably introduced this pattern into greece the second poignard is of a make not uncommon to this day in persia and india the blade is of a yellowish bronze fixed into a disc-shaped hilt of silver when wielded this lenticular disc fits to the hollow of the hand the blade coming between the first and second fingers of what use it may be asked were all these weapons to a woman and a dead woman to this we may reply that the other world was peopled with foes typhonian genii serpents gigantic scorpions tortoises monsters of every description against which it was incessantly needful to do battle the poignards placed inside the coffin for the self-defence of the soul were useful only for fighting at close quarters certain weapons of a projectile kind were therefore added such as bows and arrows boomerangs made of hard wood and a battle-axe the handle of this axe is fashioned of cedar wood covered with sheet gold the legend of ames is inlaid thereon in characters of lapis lazuli carnelian turquoise and green felspar the blade is fixed in a cleft of the wood 
and held in place by a plate-work of gold wire. It is of black bronze, formerly gilt. On one side, it is ornamental with lotus flowers upon a gold ground. On the other, Ames is represented in the act of slaying a barbarian, whom he grasps by the hair of the head. Beneath this group, Mentu, the Egyptian war-god, is symbolised by a griffin with the head of an eagle. In addition to all these objects, there were two small boats, one in gold and one in silver, emblematic of the bark in which the mummy must cross the river to her last home, and of that other bark in which she would ultimately navigate the waters of the west in company with the immortal gods. When found, the silver boat rested upon a wooden truck with four bronze wheels, but as it was in a very dilapidated state, it has been dismounted and replaced by the golden boat. The hull is long and slight, the prow and stem are elevated and terminate in gracefully curved papyrus blossoms. Two little platforms, surrounded by balustrades on a panelled ground, are at the prow and on the poop, like quarter-decks. The pilot stands upon the one, and the steersman before the other, with a large oar in his hand. This oar takes the place of the modern helm. Twelve boatmen in solid silver are rowing under the orders of these two officers, Kamis himself being seated in the centre, hatchet and sceptre in hand. Such were some of the objects buried with one single mummy, and I have, even now, enumerated only the most remarkable among them. The technical processes throughout are irreproachable, and the correct taste of the craftsman is in no wise inferior to his dexterity of hand. Having arrived at the perfection displayed at the Piru of Aahotep, the goldsmith's art did not long maintain so high a level. The fashions changed and jewellery became heavier in design. The ring of Rameses II, with his horses standing upon the bezel, and the bracelet of Prince Sar, with his griffins and lotus flowers in cloisonne enamel, both in the Louvre, are less happily conceived than the bracelets of Ahmes. The craftsmen who made these ornaments were doubtless as skilful as the craftsmen of the time of Queen Ahahotep, but they had less taste and less invention. Rameses II was condemned either to forgo the pleasures of wearing his ring, or to see his little horses damaged and broken off by the least accident. Already noticeable in the time of the 19th dynasty, this decadence becomes more marked as we approach the Christian era. The earrings of Rameses Ninth in the Giza Museum are an ungraceful assemblage of filigree discs, short chains, and pendant uraei, such as no human ear could have carried without being torn or pulled out of shape. They were attached to each side of the wig upon the head of the mummy, the bracelets of the high priest Pinatum III, found upon his mummy, are mere round rings of gold, encrusted with pieces of coloured glass and carnelian, like those still made by the Sudanese blacks. The Greek invasion began by modifying the style of Egyptian gold work, and ended by gradually substituting Greek types for native types. The jewels of an Ethiopian queen, purchased from Fellini by the Berlin Museum, contain not only some ornaments which might readily have been attributed to pharaonic times, but others of a mixed style in which Hellenic influences are distinctly traceable. The treasure discovered at Zagazig in 1878, at Kenna in 1881, and at Damaner in 1882, consisted of objects having nothing whatever in common with Egyptian traditions. They comprise hairpins supporting statuettes of Venus, zone buckles, a grapes for fastening the peplum, rings and bracelets set with cameos, and caskets ornamented at the four corners with little ionic columns. The old patterns, however, were still in request in remote provincial places, and village goldsmiths adhered, indifferent well, to the antique traditions of their craft. 
their city brethren had meanwhile no skill to do aught but make clumsy copies of greek and roman originals in this rapid sketch of the industrial arts there are many lacunae when referring to examples i have perforce limited myself to such as are contained in the best-known collections how many more might not be discovered if one had the leisure to visit provincial museums and trace what the hazard of sales may have dispersed through private collections the variety of small monuments due to the industry of ancient egypt is infinite and a methodical study of those monuments has yet to be made it is a task which promises many surprises to whomsoever shall undertake it End of chapter 5 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia End of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero Translated by Amelia B. Edwards